This is CliffCentral.com. Grant, I need to make a critical business decision. We've been expanding rapidly, and my gut feel tells me that we should be investing for growth. But I need to put some financial science behind that gut feel of mine. Don't you have a financial manager or director that can help you with that? But isn't that rather expensive? It doesn't have to be. Why don't you contact the finance team? They're a consultancy that can provide you with a part-time financial manager or director at a fraction of the cost of a full-time resource. Go to thefinanceteam.co.za. Welcome to the business section of our Business Masterclass. I'm Richard Angus, CEO of the Finance Team, your part-time financial executive solution. Joining me in studio as part of our panel is Leandi Stretter, a business coach and guide from RaceCorp. Thank you, Richard. And Cynthia Skuman of the Ethics Monitor. Thank you. Our guest on the line today is Brian Adams, Managing Director of Be Heard. Brian, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me. Great. So one of the things that we've been talking about in uh, the previous segment is this whole question of ethical decisions and dilemmas that, that are faced in, in the broader business context. Now, Brian, in your, your world um, of uh, reporting and particularly reporting uh, in, in the ethics space, I'm sure you've got lots of experience in the world of how, how people manage and have managed both positively and negatively their, some of the ethical dilemmas that they face. So I'd like to just ask if, uh, I mean, I've seen some stats that say that 9% of people who talk about ethics violations say that they fear for their lives having reported unethical behavior. Um, and when I saw that, I thought to myself, sure, that's good. Cool. That, that, that's really quite scary that, you know, people speak up and speak out and then, you know, they kind of say, I actually feel for my life after doing this. I mean, give us some insights into what you see happening in the space of, let's call it ethics management and, and, and this whole dilemma around what you do ethically, reporting it. How do you deal with this? I mean, you deal with reporting and monitoring on an ongoing basis. What are you seeing out there? Well, you know, the first thing to say is that, um, um, that there are a couple of nuances, really. The first one is that um, the, the one type of reporting is where uh, an organization hires an outsourced service provider like us uh, to manage reports uh, about their organization or within their organization. And most of the, those reports reflect people that are stealing from them or who are um, participating in activities which have got a, a negative impact on their organization. The other type of uh, whistleblowing or reporting <laughs> is uh, is where the company itself is actually uh, up to all kinds of uh, skullduggery. And in that case, uh, the intimidation or the, um, the, the negative impact or the, what, the, what the act calls uh, personal detriment uh, is far higher uh, in that where people blow the whistle on a company that's, for example, um, not paying its VAT or that's pumping effluent into the sea or that's doing all kinds of other nasties, uh, the, the incidence of, um, uh, what is the correct word, of, uh, of negative impact on the whistleblower is far higher than the normal day-to-day reporting where they're reporting that Joe in accounts uh, used the company Bucky over the weekend uh, without authorization. Yeah, I can I, I can imagine yeah the the nature of those two things. It, it, interestingly, I would imagine that one of those, I mean, the company Bucky on the weekend kind of reporting, versus the effluent pumping into the sea as a, as an example. Um, 
I mean, I would imagine one would be reported on an ethics line internally. The other may very well be reported externally to other interested parties. I mean, or do pe- or do people, uh, let me call it corporate squeal on the corporate ha- corporate uh, line or not? No, no, I don't. We have had some, but mm. I think people understand the the nuances and they they realise that that's probably not the right way to go because we contractually bound. Mm. Uh, to report to the person, uh, to the company uh, concerned. Yeah, what is important, and just to go back to your original question, you know, there have been, uh, on the 1st of August, the uh, proposals were published or uh, changes to the existing legislation were published. And my concern personally is that one of the issues which has to receive the highest attention, which is the protection of the whistleblower, uh, hasn't achieved, or, you know, the, the legislation the proposed amendments to the legislation haven't really addressed that matter. Mm. Um, you know, it's rather like uh, a woman who has a, a husband that, uh, that beats her up. She goes to court and gets an interdict. Uh, he comes around and uh, she waves the interdict at him through the uh, telly door and the guy goes ahead and shoots her. That's the value of the Protective Disclosures Act at the moment because there's sure. absolutely no teeth and no real protection for the whistleblower in terms of of uh, of, of, of vindictive uh, action against the person. Yeah, well, that's that's quite a. I mean, the the imagery that you brought up there, as you suggested, that actually is is actually so real. I mean, the reality is. The person who's having the whistle blown on them doesn't always have to get close to you to be able to effect maximum damage to you. They can actually stand quite far away from you and and uh, bring on whatever it may be, you know. And you know, it could be just as much as um, you know, whistleblowers in the corporate space finding it impossible to find jobs in the industry further down the track because everybody knows that Joe over there is the one that told on Company X. Over there is no, bad absolutely. behavior, and, and and it's almost a little bit like it. It, it, it kind of feels like the, uh, you know, what the, what's it, the closed school, the mafia, the old school uh, type of a, approach of well, everybody in the industry closes ranks behind each other and, and protects each other. So yeah, got to be careful. That sort of thing doesn't happen. Now, in this report that I was looking at from the in, uh, in, Internal uh, Auditors uh, Institute that they just mm. released, there was this comment that said. 75, uh, 74% of the uh, respondents agreed strongly that it is their personal duty to report unethical behavior. So mm. that's rather interesting because then they, they also they said only 30% agreed that they feel comfortable reporting unethical behavior. So there's this massive swing between it is their duty to report, but only 30% found that it was almost comfortable or safe to to report. And I mean, I guess if you if you put that with uh, the flip side of the 9% who fear for their lives, you can now start seeing the the the, the, the gaps in this. How does I mean you you work with uh, and your company has be heard you you work with this reporting structural space? Talk to us for a moment about the whole concept of let's call it. Um, you know, safe disclosure and reporting. How, uh, give us some frameworks that you guys work with in the industry that are important for us to know as the lay people. Well, I, I think the, the, the important thing to say from our own experience, which I can, for the last 16 years, is that to our knowledge, we've had 
almost no incidents where where people have been exposed or exposed to operational detriment as the law calls it. Um, I think the biggest problem, and, and uh, it's something that uh, I've discussed with Cynthia before, and I've put a model together, uh, which is like a picture which has got eight slices, because I've been, I've been toying or really battling with the idea of why is it that in some instances, in some organizations, a reporting service uh, uh, works extremely well. And in other environments, uh, it's almost uh, zero. And I come up with these eight critical success factors. Mm-hmm. And there is, as you quite rightly say, there's a huge gap between people that feel that they have a, a moral obligation or an ethical obligation to report something that's not there and the perceptions uh, that it's not safe to do so. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest problems, believe it or not, is the whole question of awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, even some of my clients who have been on our books since inception, when I go and visit those organizations and I speak to some of the employees there, or if I pop in at one of their outlets somewhere and I ask them if they've heard about the herd, they look at me with a, a strange look in their, in their, in their eyes. Uh, and that says to me that uh, the organizations are not really taking this thing seriously because, yes, everybody feels that they need to report stuff. Yes, everybody's sick and tired of what's going in in the, on, in the country. Yes, the organization has made a, uh, a service available that people can report. But the big problem is that the awareness within the organization is such that a big chunk of the people that work in that organization don't really know how to do it. They're not comfortable. They haven't, it hasn't been explained to them. They haven't got a champion that they can go to to get advice if they need advice about what the correct way to do it is, how to do it. Uh, so there are those issues which we as service providers have got to deal with and have got to, have got to, um, make available to our clients' uh, staff. But, but Brian, I, I would add to that that I, I hear your point around awareness, but I would add to that that the organization is also not really maximizing the message of the value of surfacing information about misconduct at as early a possible stage, of saying, if we know what's going wrong and we can get in there and fix it, this is hugely positive. I mean, quite obviously it's positive. But... If the company is not not putting that message out, and crucially, of course, if the company is then not acting on on the information and correcting what is wrong, um, of course, the whole system goes awry. But but the value of surfacing that information, if we can nip the problem in the bud, is is huge. But I also think organisations are not getting that message out. So Absolutely. Absolutely. I posted a thing over the weekend on, on LinkedIn uh, called the, the Information Iceberg, I think it is, which shows that um, management knows a tiny proportion of what re- what's really happening in an organization. Mm-hmm. And the people at the ground are the people that know everything. So the trick is to get that information through some kind of channel uh, to the people at the top in a way and in, in a, in a form, format that is acceptable to management. Yes. And what we've, what we've started doing now, which is unique in the industry, is we've developed a very short uh, eight-question uh, survey, which we send out to a sample of all our clients' employees every month and ask them to complete the survey completely anonymously in terms of uh, their identity will be, never be made known to the employer. But it provides us with a bit of quality assurance as to our service that we're rendering but it also provides really good intelligence 
to our clients as to what the people on the ground are really, uh, are really feeling about a whole lot of things. So we believe that it's no longer, uh, it's no longer a good idea to be completely reactive about it and sit here in our various contact centers and wait for people to phone us. We believe that we've got to change the paradigm here and we've got to start um, actually contacting the people and saying, look, we from Be Heard, um, we're not sure if you've heard of us, but uh, we've been contracted by your organization to provide this service. Would you like to chat to us about anything? And uh, we're hoping that this thing, which we've recently started, is going to, uh, is going to really bear fruit. Something that comes up for me, um, Brian, I think that is a great initiative in terms of getting around things because depending on internal change uh, management sometimes in comms and especially, you know, when there is so much noise already in, 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 in an organization around communication and change management, et cetera, and expectations and, and employees having to do their jobs and especially at the end of the year where performance reviews are coming up, et cetera, and, you know, mm. a lot of people's livelihoods depend on this, is, that, is the aspect of victimization. So, yeah. you know, the, you say anonymous um, surveys and giving people a, really giving people an objective platform to communicate and I, I think what what because my initial feeling was you know if you go into an organization and you say well we've been would you like to talk to us but with the added sort of message of we've been sort of mandated by your organization and it's okay to talk to us yeah, um, yeah. I think a lot of you know that is a safety element that is so important because I don't think we always realize the victimization aspect and how deep it actually uh, goes and that's not even I mean that's just on one aspect of it you have various other aspects like you know gender issues race issues everything else playing Absolutely. out at the same Absolutely. time yeah. you know that's you know it's, we have, fortunately, over the last 15 or 16 years, we've, we've built up quite a lot of credibility. Mm. And, you know, you have to break this whole thing, you know, this, mm. I'm from head office, I'm here to help, because a lot of people are still very cynical about, <laughs> oh, it, about that kind of thing. Yeah, and, 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 Brian, if I can interrupt you, it's not only the cynical nature of the, the head office statement, it's also mm. the, and we are confidential. Yeah. You yeah, can talk yeah, to us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of I hear those words, and I think I see everybody around me go, "Oh yeah, right." So, so <laughs> see, how do you manage yeah. that? Such a great. Well, you question. see, the the our stats indicate that eighty uh, percent plus of everybody that contacts us tells us who they are. They give us their name and contact details because sure. that in, that enables us to act as a bridge between. The person that's making the report and the, the client organization so that the client can communicate with us and we can communicate with the caller without the caller's uh, identity ever being compromised. Mm. And that's a huge plus. Mm. So 80% tell us who they are initially and ask us not to make their identity known. And as the investigation develops, uh, the organization will keep asking us questions which we can then uh, you know, contact the, the caller. But eventually, once the, the matter may reach the stage where um, they want to go to court, then the, the client may contact us and say, can you get hold of that person that made the report and ask them if they would like to, you know, if they feel comfortable enough to actually make an affidavit and uh, come out of the, of the cupboard uh, and, and actually make, uh, and go to court and, and give evidence. And sometimes it happens. Often it happens if the person that made the initial report feels comfortable enough they will then say, sure, I'm prepared to get involved uh, in the disciplinary process. And that's the first prize. Yeah, I was going to say, the, I often 
wonder about this. I'm prepared to talk, but I'm not prepared to be the witness. Um, that always worries me. You know, people, I, I don't know. Do you, I mean, in your experience, do you get that where people go, yes. you know, I'll, I'll talk about what's happening, but I'm not prepared to be a witness for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You see, the, the beautiful thing about this, this uh, reporting service is that not every report you get is going to lead to a, a conviction. But what it does do is it provides, systematically it provides little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And I've got, I can write a book about it, and perhaps I should, about mm-hmm. the cases that, that have, have actually been successful because the, the, the organization has been patiently collecting these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and putting cases together. Because what it happens is, if you get one report, yes, that's interesting. If you get two, then you move the spotlight onto that particular person or that particular organization, maybe a warehouse at Site C or whatever the case is. Mm. And you use your, your scarce resources, your scarce risk resources, to actually keep your eye on that particular um, person or that particular. You can do a, a lifestyle audit. You can start doing some digging. And then systematically, you get more and more reports about the same thing or about the, the same person, and then you're able to put a very detailed case together. So, you know, a lot of people think that when you get a report, you, you can run down to the accounts department and arrest the woman in, in creditors because she's just been reported on the, on the, on the whistleblowing service. That's, uh, it has happened a few times, hysterically enough. But, um, <laughs> but clearly, that's, that's not the right approach. And I wrote a little ebook on how to manage this thing because a lot of people have the completely incorrect perception that it, once a report comes through, it's uh, it's done and dusted. It's it's mm. truth. When in fact, a report is merely just an allegation, which which has to um, be respected as such and has to be treated as such, and uh, one has to then start doing um, an investigation. Brian, Brian, sorry, Brian. If I can ask you, you say you wrote an ebook. Where could our listeners download a copy of that ebook from? They can email me at uh, Brian at B Heard, B R I A N at B Heard dot C O dot Reda, and I'll happily send them on. Okay, great. What we'll do, Brian, as well, if you're happy, we'll actually create a link to uh, to that for you on our on our website with our podcast. If you're happy to do that, we'll, we'll gladly yeah, do that the, for you. They can also go to uh, www.beheard.co.za. I think there's a link there which uh, they can ask for the for the download. For the, for the download, we'll we'll create that yeah. link for you. So, listeners, mm-hmm. if you want to find that uh, ebook download, because that sounds like a really valuable. Mm insight that we can have. We're happy to, to do that. You can find that on our websites. Now, right. But Ryan, I, I was going to, to put to you that, that I mean, we've, we've explored, and I think what you're sharing are, are very innovative and very positive ways on trying to access this vital information and, and as you say, turn this into something proactive. I, I really support what Leandro is saying on this. This is a, a wonderful initiative. But surely one of the, the curved balls that you have to deal with is the whole question of impunity, that mm. when something Absolutely. comes up, and, and surely that, you know, to put it mildly, must, must dampen employees' um, motivation to want to speak up. Now, when you, when you first spoke to me about this uh, interview, the first word I wrote down on my little pad here was impunity. Mm. Because... One of the eight slices of the pizza is uh, uh, um, remedial action. And one of the new clients that I had the other day said they're very interested in, in uh, subscribing, but uh, they don't have the resources to follow up, the, to investigate and follow up. So I said, well, then don't have a line. 
But seriously, I'd love to sell you a line, but don't have a line if you're not going to do anything about it. Yes. Because mm-hmm. what Cynthia is referring to here is is almost like a, um, what would you call it? Uh, people are just, you know, they see stuff happening, they report it, and nothing ever gets done. Yes. So they just they just stop and they say, well, I'm actually over it now. I'm not going to do any more reporting. I'm actually going to uh, withdraw from this whole ethics profile, uh, this whole ethics program in the organisation because I can see that management have just done it because it's a tick on the on the um, yes. on the dreaded governance uh, program, yeah. and uh, they're just paying lip service to it. And because of that, uh, I was keen, but I'm actually not keen anymore, and mm-hmm. I'm just going to withdraw from the whole process. And it's absolutely, Cynthia is absolutely spot on. That mm-hmm. is, if I can say, if I can highlight one uh, aspect which is killing off crime fighting and the whole fight against uh, workplace dishonesty and workplace crime, it's the fact that nothing ever gets happened, nothing ever happens uh, to people that. Uh, that commit unethical behaviour or uh, unlawful practices, etc. And and Brian, I mean, I I guess for me, the question is, how does one manage that with your clients if you if you're engaged and they, they ask you to to support them with the program? I mean, do you actually let me call it from your side, from an ethical perspective, fire your clients who choose not to act? Is that something you do? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, Good to hear. Good I, to I hear. Great. that's great action. <laughs> so, so now I have done it before with a listed company who actually signed up uh, very grudgingly um, because the internal auditors told them that they had to have a reporting service. They did everything. Well, the guy I was working with, my contact person, who was a senior guy, a director, did everything he could from day one to white ant the whole service. They did no awareness training. They, they did absolutely zero. And after a year, they went back to the board and said, well, it's not working, um, so we're going to stop it. And fortunately, before they could tell me, I told them, and I contacted the, the, uh, the non-executive directors and said, this is a complete farce. We're going to withdraw from our agreement with you. Mm. Well, it's, it's, it's good to hear that your ethical line is drawn in the sand because, it, I mean, ultimately you just look at this and you go, my goodness, I would hope that we, we know and understand what the, what the, what the limits are in, in this type of scenario and what, what people do and don't do. I think there's a lot of lip service to the world of ethics. Um, mm. and yeah, it's something we've discussed at nauseum in, on the shows, the whole lip service versus genuinely I'm involved and I'm committed and I want to make, make this happen and, and, and resolve it. Now, Ryan, I'm sure you've got some really interesting, uh, war stories that you can tell us about, uh, things that happen and the things that you hear on these, the, these li- <laughs> lines. I'm mm. sure there's some really hilarious things that, 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 that happen, but, I mean, just from a serious perspective, I mean, do do people actually report fairly serious governance and ethics breaches on the lines, or do they tend to be more um, pedestrian type of reporting, you know, the use of the company vehicle over the weekend? Do we actually see the lines being used for the, you know, Paradise Papers type of stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, look, I think over the last 16 years or so, the the nature of the reporting has changed dramatically. I, I think things like uh, were mentioned earlier, the, uh, the so-called soft issues, which are certainly not soft issues in, to my mind, things like um, 
bullying, um, sexual harassment, all those kind of issues. They are far widely reported than they were 15, 16 years ago. That's good to um, hear. We, sorry, I beg your pardon? I said that's good to hear. Absolutely. Mm. But uh, by, by far, the most reports that we get are for dishonesty, workplace dishonesty, gender-related, fraud, theft, that kind of thing. Um, by far, the biggest chunk of all our reporting concerns that kind of stuff. And obviously, we've had some massive stuff. We've had cases where um, uh, significant things that you read about in the newspapers, on the front page of the Sunday newspapers, are actually started by some uh, well-meaning person reporting it to us. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, obviously we can't go into detail, but, no, uh, not. but, but Brian, if, if I may just, sorry. No, I was going to just sorry. make a comment on, on the people who speak up, and I, I just really want to acknowledge that in so many cases it takes real courage for those people to speak up, and I, I just think that we should pause for a second to acknowledge that, but I interrupted you. Please continue. No, no, I agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, we, we try. I mean, some of our staff have been doing this for a long time. And we understand the trauma of people phoning in. And often uh, we actually act as almost like a semi-counselor mm. because we have to sort of encourage the person to stay calm and to be, it's okay to, to do, you know, because some of them are terrified that something's going to happen. Of course. Um, but I wanted to change tact slightly and just say that my, one of our biggest problems is that for many organizations, having a reporting service is still a grudge purchase. And I want to just type of something that Cynthia uh, spoke to me about, and it's in her book, and that's the whole question of ROI. And my personal crusade at the moment is trying to convince organizations that ethics is good business, that mm. it, does, it does grow your ethical capital. Uh, that having a uh, good ethics climate in your organization leads to better profitability. It translates directly to the bottom line. But unfortunately, although people are getting more and more used to that kind of thinking, it's still ethics is still seen as something that uh, you give to somebody to do. You get an outside uh, consultant in to write your stuff, but it's nothing that's really embraced as part of the whole DNA of the organization. And I think we've still got a long way to go to get to the point where ethics is seen as something that's first on the agenda of every board meeting. Because mm. at the moment, it's, it's, uh, it, I don't know if Cynthia agrees with me or not. I do, I do. <laughs> she, she's nodding profusely here in the, in the mm. studio there, Brian. <laughs> you know, you know it, often ethics only comes, uh, becomes important when, when it, it, there's been a reputational uh, volcano eruption, volcanic eruption. Yes. Uh, that's when everybody starts scurrying around the boardroom trying to, number one, look for scapegoats, and secondly, to try and find some ethics consultant to come and help them deal with the problem. Yes. Uh, uh, the so the proverbial be, clean-up crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it, yeah. And uh, the problem is, and I think what Cynthia and I and other ethics practitioners are trying to 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 hammer through to people is that guys, this is something that's got to be top of your agenda. If you look at the if you look at the companies that are really the, the top earners in the world, those are the companies that have got uh, ethical business practices. So Brian, uh, I'm not going to mention any names, but it's, <laughs> we've got to get to that stage where we understand it. 
Brian, so a question yep. I have for you from the sort of small, medium business side of things is when it, when somebody, for argument's sake, starts a business and they've been going for about five years, when is it a good time pre-board um, for them to start, not just depending on, you know, we believe very strongly in values-based businesses. I work with a, a company that is very um, focused on building strong businesses that are sustainable based on value sets. But when would some a business like that formally start looking at their governance from an ethical perspective and start looking, what is the trigger and what do they need to do? When would they reach out to you typically? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, we all know, we've all read uh, Richard Branson's books about, uh, you know, when he was in startup phase and all this skullduggery that he got up to. Uh, and a lot of people, a lot of big businesses, a lot of big listed companies started out sort of at the grubby end of the spectrum, mm. sort of in the su- survival uh, mode. And as they got higher and higher up the, uh, the ladder, so they became... Uh, more and more concerned about governance and reputation and all that kind of thing. I personally, and I interact a lot with small businesses, mm. I personally believe that's one of the things that when you start your business, you need to lay out your, um, your tent and say, this is how I'm going to do business. And uh, I'm not going to use dodgy software. I'm not going to duck and dive on this. And I'm, I'm going to treat my creditors with respect, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I think you need to almost write your own personal, not a, something you stick up on the wall, but something you write in your, in your, in your, um, uh, your journal where you say to yourself that I'm going to, as a business owner that's starting up a business, I'm going to commit myself to doing business this way mm-hmm. and, and make that something which is actually your, your cornerstone mm-hmm. of your business. Because... I am absolutely convinced, and I, people can shoot me down and say what they like, but I'm absolutely convinced that if you start and manage an ethical business, you're going to win in the marketplace. I'm convinced. Brian, thank you very much. I think those statements are so true. Um, thank you very much, Brian, for your contribution on the show. That was Brian Great. Adams, Managing Director of Be Heard. Thank you to our panel. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Next up, the Youth Leadership Platform. This is cliffcentral.com.